What is up, guys? Welcome to the Reborn Podcast. I'm so excited that today is a best of Veterans Day special episode. I have had the honor and the privilege to not only have a lot of veteran guests on the show, but I have a lot of veterans that are really good friends of mine who have also been on the show. And uh, uh, so I'm really excited to just kind of, we're going to do a best of show and, and, and honor some of the veterans that I've had on the Reborn podcast. The first one up is Mike Glover. He is a former U.S. Army officer, and he is the founder and the CEO of uh, Fieldcraft Survival. And he does so many amazing things for uh, just readiness and preparedness. Um, I met Mike Glover uh, through social media he has a lot, he does a lot of like really informative lives, a lot of really great educational stuff on his social media channels. Um, but also he does firearm training as well, which is where I first met him. Um, and I took one of his classes. So I actually got his Glock that I run sometimes yeah. and the agency arms and then his, uh, I also have his horse that he gave me, Lola. His horse, yeah. Thanks, <laughs> so, Mike. <laughs> uh, I, I'm really excited to bring him on. If you're not familiar with uh, his company, Fieldcraft Survival, check that out. Um, I had him on the podcast recently, and um, he opened up about the power of mindset and resiliency. So let's check him out. I kind of want to talk about your mental fortitude. And I love how you have been able to create this community. Um, do you think that when it comes to doing everything that you've done and like building these communities of, uh, of groups, how much of that do you think kind of transpired from having the community like in the military that you had and just like the mentality of being, of being who you are today. Yeah. Mindset is truly the start point in preparedness. And when I, when I lived in that culture that was in special operations, you build resiliency through hard work, through training, through operations, through war, through all these experiences. And so I understood that in hindsight, right? I didn't understand it when I was in, but looking back on that experience, I go, dude, that, that is the reason why my mindset is resilient. And so when I stepped into civilian life, I realized there's a lot of people who don't understand what that means. And so mm-hmm. I had to create a, a, a way to disseminate the understanding of mindset and the best way to build mindset and resiliency in people is through exposure, not only exposure to challenges and circumstance, but exposure to other people. Because when when people start peering together, and there's a psych, uh, you know, a, a, a psychology to this called groupthink. When people band together, they become stronger. Their will becomes stronger. And if you see this show alone, a lot of the people quit and fail not because they lack the technical capabilities, but because they lack the mental fortitude. Because for the first time, they're alone inside their own head. So how do you become better at that? Well, you need to spend time alone. You need to spend time with other people. You need to spend time exposed to things that you're not comfortable with. And I think the coolest thing about the whole mission that we're doing Philcraft is seeing what happens when you bring people together, um, the communities that are built, but also how much more resilient that people become 
because of that, which I, which I think is the, the best benefit of, of doing this whole thing. That's Phil craft. Mm-hmm. Um, so talking about mindset recently, you, I'm going to read this quote that you wrote recently on your Instagram. Um, you said your mindset is not just a state of mind, but a literal statement in your mind, confidence, self-esteem, belief, all starts with you right now. Want help? Do this. Walk to the nearest mirror, look at yourself in your iPhone camera And I want you to say, I am the baddest, most capable person here. Can you kind of unpack that a little bit? Because I think, um, I mean, you can just tell like your your mindset, you have such a solid mindset. Um, Just everything that you do is just, it's just, I think that it's so impeccable. So I kind of want to talk about that a little bit um, and and really kind of unpack that. Yeah. So, you know, people need to understand that um, for the most part, we don't know as individuals a lot about our minds. Neuroscience, which is brain science, they do have a lot of understanding. But there's a disconnect between what we understand in science and what we understand as normal human beings in society. So making this connection, bridging this gap is super important. One of the things that I like to to talk about is like the diagnostic understanding of how things work. If you don't know how your brain works and you start experiencing symptoms that you don't understand, then the only solution for human beings is to involve emotion and make a lot of assumptions. And, you know, assumptions are one of the worst things that you could do to yourself. And so Mm -hmm. what I want to do is create an understanding more of the technical and scientific understanding of how the brain works. So when you start feeling something, You don't immediately associate it with an emotion and then get overwhelmed and then start making assumptions and then react poorly. But instead you go, oh, this is more technical. The reason I feel this way is because this part of my brain is acting this way chemically, which is translating to this and that's going to help me. So when we understand that there's a science behind the curtain, then we could, we could start addressing things more cognitively and more technically Versus more emotionally. So the, the, the conversation uh, or the, the narrative that you just spoke upon was, the, was an idea that stems from something. You, you are literally what you think you are because that's our focus works. And so mm-hmm. if you take your, uh, your cell phone, your cell phone records in 4K. You only have so much bandwidth or, or data capability in your hard drive in your phone. So if you record everything in 4K, then you're going to overwhelm the storage and then you're not going to be able to record anything else and it shuts down. So your brain is the same way. So if we didn't have a filter to partition the things that we needed to specifically focus on, then we would be overwhelmed. Our hard drive would crash. So if you think about that, when you wake up, you only are attentive to certain things and focus throughout the day. So if you're listening to this podcast, you're listening to it and you're driving your car, you're working out and you're actually listening to it, but you're focused. So the way that your brain works is you have a a voice in your head, this narration, it creates an idea. That idea then goes out into the world and partition focus and starts looking for evidence of that that narration in your head. So if you say to yourself, 
um, I'm the best that ever lived. Well, let's say, let's say you said, let's say you're religious. Have you ever seen a religious person look for counter arguments to their faith? Never. No, no, because, mm-hmm. because what it is, is it's an idea in my head because I believe it. I go out into the world and, and the, the opposite is true. They look out and they go, mm-hmm. that tragic circumstance, I find the good out of all the bad. And then I make the correlation to my belief. And I say, see, that's a miracle. There, there was a miracle there in that tragedy. And then that becomes their faith. That becomes their new belief. So we script right in our heads, the narration. We go out into the world looking for the evidence. And then that evidence we find, we make it a belief. So if you look at yourself in the mirror and you say, you're a fat piece of crap. What you're going to do mm-hmm. is you're going to go out in the world. You're going to look at people's demeanor. You're going to listen to comments. You're going to look at people's eyes looking at you and go and see, I knew it. They, they thought I was a, a fat, disgusting, ugly, whatever it is. And that becomes our new belief. So mm-hmm. when you look at mindset, it's not just a concept. It's not an idea. It's science. You want to be the very best that you could be. It starts with yourself introspect and perception look yourself Mm -hmm. in the mirror and i don't care if you're not the best tell yourself you're the best look for the evidence in the world that you are the best and then make that your core belief that's how it works Mm -hmm. we also have jack carr who is such an amazing writer. Uh, this past spring, I got to talk with Jack. He's a former former Navy SEAL. He's a sniper. He's the author of the best-selling uh, Terminalist series. The novels are currently being made into TV shows, starring Chris Pratt for Amazon Prime Video. Uh, Jack also has the podcast called Danger Close. Um, and like Reborn, it's an Ironclad original series. So on this podcast, Jack discusses uh, what it like transitioning out of the military uh, into the civilian world, doing writing, and why it's important to set big goals. Welcome on, Jack. Let's hear what he has to say. Uh, I know a struggle, especially coming from like the pack mentality that you have and, and the brotherhood, a lot of people struggle to find that in the civilian world. Um, becoming an author and writing about the the things that you've written about and the terminalist and um, the the series that you've written about. Do you think the uh, does it does it feel like that you're still able to hold on to that and that you still feel a part of that? Did you have any problems separating and going into the civilian world? Which I know a lot of people, especially operators, um, it's kind of a, it's a shock. It's it's a shock when they go into the real world and it's just like you know. Uh, what well, I probably shouldn't even say the real world, but into civilization, whenever you don't have your brothers there, you don't have that core group of, of people who just have your back all the time. How was that? And do you think that the writing um, and becoming an author and becoming James Reese, did that help you? Uh, did that help you with the transition? Absolutely. Like the writing was very therapeutic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for those that have read it, know, will know what I mean uh, by that. And so that really helped in that respect. Um, but, uh, but it, yeah, 
it was it wasn't a tough transition i would say but it's just because i was so passionate about what i what i wanted to do next um and a lot of guys have a hard time identifying what that next passion is uh and a lot of the second novel true believer is about that it's a novel of redemption about it's a journey of uh trying to find that next mission in life that next passion in life learning to live again um and and a lot of people i saw try to recreate what they had in the military on the outside. So uh, going into that, you have to realize that you're not going to. You're not going to be shoulder to shoulder with your brothers downrange in a firefight, uh, solely focused on a mission. Uh, no, you're in. Uh, it's it's going to be different now. And that was a that was a huge part, very impactful for all of us. But now, when we make this transition into the private sector, um, we have to know that just like anything in life, it doesn't matter. It could be a death of a loved one. It could be a divorce. It could be changing jobs. Uh, it doesn't matter. There's mm -hmm. there's transitions we're all going to go through, and we're all going to get knocked down along this path. Um, that's just normal. Um, so you have to realize that moving into the private sector, that it's not going to be the same. And I shouldn't try to recreate what I had in the military here in new job, whatever mm -hmm. that is. Because if that's my expectation, then I'm going to be uh, very disappointed in how that turns out. So for, for guys that are transitioning out, um, I think it's so important uh, to take that breath and try to identify that that calling. Listen to that to to, to that calling. Um, and then also, if you're trying to kind of figure it out, I think it's so valuable to do month long internships in different industries because if you think you want to, if you know what you want to do as you're getting out, what's that based on? Is that based on like movies that you saw, TV shows, books that you read? Um, because that might not be the reality of what you're stepping into. You might have built something up that's not, uh, and you might be disappointed when you get there. So being able to go and touch, have these touch points and data points with different industries and spend some time in them uh, so you can say, oh wow, I'm so glad I didn't get out and jump, move my family across the country and jump into this job because it is horrible and it's not what I expected at all. You know, it doesn't look like, you know, whatever, law, you know, law and order. This is definitely not that. It, I totally had a mis, uh, misunderstanding of what this was going to be. Um, so being able to take a little time during that last year in and try to do these internships with different companies in the private sector so that you can say, okay, I can cross these off the list for sure. Mm -hmm. uh, and coming up with what's important to you like what's is uh what what's what your next mission in life is going to be and being able to to articulate that and then also that helps because you can say no when right. you get an offer for something and that's almost more important than being able to say yes because you only have certain bandwidth you only have limited you have a limited amount of time so for my wife and i we identified what was going to be important to us uh and that was freedom both financially and schedule wise. Yep. Um, and so if I got an offer and I had backups because, you know, it's, it's important to have, to have backups and contingency <laughs> plans. Um, so I had some and I'm glad I didn't have to exercise them because I'm sure I would be miserable. But but I had, what, what were your backups? There's some financial uh, industry type stuff where I would have been awful it's all working for for somebody else you know right. and just and, and grinding for for somebody else doing something that i wasn't passionate about but but they existed so that was just like it was important to have something that existed that we knew we could yeah. fall back on if if yeah. need be um but and identifying the two things that were important to us if something didn't hit both of them it was an instant no so hey you could have this you, you can control your schedule um but uh but your the financial freedom part's definitely not going to be there or hey the financial freedom part is going to be there but 
you know what, you're not going to control this mm -hmm. schedule. So it was easy to be like, okay, no. And that allowed me to put all that bandwidth into the novels, into writing, into what I was passionate about. Mm -hmm. um, because I wasn't like, okay, let's sit down, let's talk. Here's this opportunity. Uh, okay, here's where it is in the country. And we didn't have to do any of that. It's like, nope, didn't hit both. Nope, didn't hit both. Um, so that was was very beneficial to us as we looked at some of those some of those backups. But uh, but for me, the and I didn't really consider not succeeding in any of this. Uh, and succeeding is a weird word to use, but I guess um, succeeding I mean by meeting those two those two parameters that yep. we set the financial freedom and the schedule. Did so you I ever uh, work out? Did you ever think or have the vision of your books becoming so exponentially huge? Bestsellers. Yeah, you're Best a New York, you're a New York Times bestseller. Yeah. That's insane. Crazy. Yeah, so I did. Um, and yeah, it's totally naive, of course, um, because people touch like with going to the SEAL teams, people tell you how hard it is. Uh, people tell you, you know, that 80% attrition and all that sort of thing. And in, in my head, when I came in pre-internet days in 96, like I thought a SEAL team was like six guys. Like I had no idea. Like I thought that six people and that was like, okay, there's three on each coast-ish, okay. And there's some SDV stuff going on out there. I'm like, okay, I'll be one of these like 40 people in the world that's going to make it through and be in one of these teams. I didn't even really consider uh you know what that really meant of course there are a lot more than six people on <laughs> on a team and i realized that fairly quickly once i got to buds but uh uh but i did i thought i always knew growing up that hey i'm i'm doing all this to prepare myself for for buds and then uh going to the seal teams and and uh you know fighting for the country like everything i'm going to do is going to going to somehow lead back to to helping me along along that path uh so same thing with writing i, I never considered that these wouldn't be new york times bestsellers that an a star uh, and and, uh, and director wouldn't be uh, trans making it into a film. Like it was just that's what happened because that's the guys that I read growing up, and that was my kind of uh, that's just what I expected to have happen. Because why wouldn't it? Mm -hmm. um, but looking back, I'm like, oh my goodness, like that's that's crazy to I guess think that way. But uh, uh, but that's what I thought, and I actually pictured Chris Pratt starring. Uh, he's the only person I ever wanted to star. Uh. In it. Um, and that's Tell him he I had, said hi. And that's weird because he was Andy on Parks and Rec. I know. I loved him on Parks and Rec. Yeah. He was so good. And goofy. when I thought that, so in December of 2014, January of 2015, as I'm starting to write, I'm like, okay, uh, he'd done that and he'd done Zero Dark Thirty, very small role in Zero Dark Thirty. But I was like, this is the guy because he is likable. And he is, and he's in that part of his career where he needs to do something to push himself a little more. He needs to prove to audiences that he can do something dark and primal and visceral and violent um, and push himself as an actor. And in my head, I'm like, yep, Chris Pratt. Uh, and I had no idea that there was a connection to him at all uh, until November of 2017, when a buddy from the SEAL teams calls me and he's like, hey, do you remember me? I hadn't talked to him in about five years. His name's Jared Shaw, awesome guy. And uh, I'm like, Jared, of course I remember you. How's it going? And he says, uh, <laughs> hey, I always wanted to thank you for what you did for me in the SEAL teams. And I couldn't even remember what it was. And uh, I thought, you know, <laughs> you're like, you're I, welcome. It's it totally fine. <laughs> like, we totally would do it again. I, yeah, exactly. Exactly. My pleasure. Uh, but he's like, he's like, you sat me down in your office. You talked to me about transition. You introduced me to people in the private sector. And no one else did anything like that for me. I've never forgotten. I always wanted to thank you. And I was like, no That's problem. really important. Uh, yeah. How's it going? And he's like, well, I heard you have a book coming out. And I like, yeah, have a book coming out. I have this like galley copy thing, which is a rough draft I can send you. And, and he said, yeah, I'd like that. But I'd like to give one to a friend of mine. And I'm like, yeah, no problem. Who's that? And he said, Chris Pratt. Oh, oh. what a friend to have. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I sent it to Jared. He read it. He loved it. He gave it to Chris and said, this is your next project. That is and so crazy like, how, uh, yeah, how yeah. everything is just kind interconnected. of interconnected. Do you, um, do you ever, I'm sure you do, but uh, writer's block and 
um, an inspiration. Do you ever lose that? Or like, how do you what, kind of explain that? And how do you overcome that? I'm really interested. Yeah. So I don't have time for writer's block. Um, <laughs> it's like, great with. He doesn't have time for writer's block. Yeah. So we have like three kids, dog, chaos, you know, just like, you you know, it's like insanity at any given time. Like it's chaos around here. Um, so, so I, yeah, I don't have time for, like, I have to maximize every single second. Uh, and I heard Stephen Pressfield who wrote a book uh, called Gates of Fire, another one, Legend of Bagger Vance, Afghan Campaign, and a series of books on creativity. Uh, the first one's called The War of Art. He has a uh, turning pro, do the work, uh, warrior ethos. Um, just an amazing, amazing guy. But I heard him say that, and an interview once he said hey you never hear of truckers having truckers block or mm -hmm. a dentist having dentist block like you're a writer you're a professional that's what you do right do the so work. you think it's you think it's in your mind you think it's in your mind of being like oh i have writer's block or or like I mean, what like what is it maybe one day i'll have this thing called writer's block but i just think of it in terms of how stephen pressfield said like a right. trucker doesn't get in his truck and all of a sudden get trucker's block and not able to drive yeah that yeah uh, i always yeah. wonder you're supposed to just like type and just write and like whatever fuck comes out like just go with it and just like yeah, don't just, look back because you find something in there you know that's yeah, you've got to sit down and do it and i think like maybe if you had if i had the time and the luxury to have this writer's block thing maybe i would but uh at this stage there is no room for writer's block mm. uh and i love writing i said i'm not that's awesome. running out of any ideas anytime soon uh, i know where the i'm writing the fifth book right now i know where the sixth is going at the beginning middle end of the sixth mm. so that uh, no bandwidth is wasted, like worrying, oh boy, when I get to the end of this, <laughs> what's going to happen? Um, so worried about the sixth book. Like, I'm not worried about that at all because I know where it's going. Mm -hmm. So all that bandwidth, energy, and effort is just focused on making the book the best it can possibly be. And so I, that's why I like to start. I have a title when I start out. I have a one-page executive summary. I have an outline um, that's uh, it's more of a guide than, uh, than exactly like what's going to happen, but a guide beginning, middle, and end, a few things I want to weave in there along the way. But, uh, but then I just, yeah, sit down and, and get it done. Uh, and don't have to worry about the title. Don't have to worry about where it's going. Don't have to worry about where the sixth book starts. So I think I find that very helpful. Now we have Jimmy Hatch. I have known Jimmy Hatch for many years. Uh, he is also a former Navy SEAL, and he is the founder of Spikes K9. It's an organization that provides ballistic vests, uh, police vehicle heat alarms, and medical cost assistance for working dogs. Um, I've known Jim, uh, Jimmy for over five years. In fact, I've done a lot of charity work to help them raise money for their platform of, of helping working canines across the U.S., I've done two 25-hour rows, and we're actually getting ready to do my third annual 25-hour row in March. Uh, it's going to be for all the canines, so you guys can hear more about that. Um, you know, Jimmy had uh, his whole life changed during the deployment in Afghanistan when he, where he was shot in the leg on a mission. Um, so last September 2020, Jimmy visited the Reborn podcast and we discussed the challenges that he faced when he returned home, the difficulties, he, the difficulties of transitioning uh, and just the power, the power of having a strong community um, and some of his most challenging moments. So let's hear what he had to say. Every day I was in the military, I knew what I had to do and I knew what my mission was and I knew like, hey, if I'm not overseas fighting, we're getting ready to go and we need to be really good at it. I had this purpose and this drive and mm -hmm. this, it was given to me. And I went through these vetting processes that 
put me in a place where, you know, we were operating at a very high level and I wanted that, but nobody was handing me that. You know what I mean? Like that was cool in the military, but nobody outside of it really gave a damn. Yeah. You right. know, I mean, like, that's not true. No, there no, are people is, who want to manipulate that. Oh, you, you know, you came from this unit. Well, Hey, we got a job for you selling, you know, it's different though. Right, it's yeah. like, it's the, it's, I don't know why, but I want to use the word tribe. You know, it's funny. I, just, <laughs> I think there's a certain amount of truth to that, but I also think it's that's often abused. You know, guys who scream brotherhood the loudest are often the guys that aren't very mm. good brothers. So I, I found people have tried to manipulate that right. brotherhood like the term, to, like what it means, yeah, yeah, or tribe. Yeah, and tribe. I'm, I'm very sensitive to the tribe thing. Right. But it, what it came down to to me was that the brotherhood or the tribe were guys that I was in gunfights with. Right. And we went out there together and did things. Um, Those were your who-mans? Right. They were my people. But that that wasn't fair. And it was Mm -hmm. also arrogant and limiting. So it took me a while to get through that, and I didn't handle it well. So I got hurt, got addicted to the meds, washing them down with vodka. Spent, uh, I had 18 surgeries on my legs. Uh, spent over a month. Surgeries. I spent a month in getting surgeries. Came home for a few weeks, and then back in the hospital for a few weeks, getting more surgeries. Then I went out to um, out to Arizona to a hospital out there to get some stuff done. Then I came home, and I was done. And I started drinking myself to death and uh, washing my pills down with vodka. And then I decided I was just going to kill myself. So I walked out. I remember I I was really messed up, but I remember not wanting to make a mess in the house. So I went outside and the driveway garbage cans took a pistol put it in my mouth could didn't really have the minerals to squeeze it off i know how to use a gun you know it was just it was a really bad cry for help my wife sees me and she's like holy shit she runs out grabs a gun again i know how to use a gun i could have pulled the trigger and blow my blow my brains out i just didn't have it in me then i was disappointed that i did that to my wife and i felt like a you know okay you you don't even have the minerals to finish the job you you're worthless you know it made me feel worse so she went back in the house, called my unit, and they said, hey, man, you need to call the police. So the guys, I remember listening to her call 911 and explain to them who I was and my background. And I remember that day because there had been a shooting in a park not too far from our house. And I'm like, yeah, these guys will be wired. They'll be fired up, and they'll come over here, and they'll want to fight, and I'm all over that. Maybe they'll shoot me in the head because I don't have the minerals to do it. And those guys came over, and I remember watching them get out of the car. And again, I was really messed up. But they got out of the car. They were pros first of all they weren't tough guy coming up with their chest like hey we're gonna thump you buddy which i kind of wanted mm-hmm. and then the next thing i know we're talking about baseball and i feel like they give a shit like they right. care yeah so i would like to take this moment to just reflect a little bit at this time when we're all hearing about defunding the police and you know people are you don't hear much good about what the police do but i'm a product of good policing. They and saved your life. Yeah, mm-hmm. and they didn't pull a gun. They didn't fight me. All they did was make me feel like they gave a shit. And they showed mm-hmm. up because my wife called them because she was freaked out. Yeah. And they didn't know what they were walking into, and they still showed up. And I think that there should be more talk like that. I think it's embarrassing what I did, but I think, you know, whatever. But, I'm just, I can't but, help what I no, did, but, but like, those guys need to be recognized. Uh, but at that moment... Oh, yeah. You know, you talk about, like, the purpose and, like, who you are now and the good, Jimmy, that you're doing for, like, so many people. If you wouldn't have gone through that, you would not 
have helped as many people as you have helped today. For sure. I think it was definitely humbling. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. No doubt. Anyway, those guys hooked me up. My buddies came over. They turned me over. The cops turned me over. Them. They took me to the hospital. I was met there by a couple people. One of them was Mike Day. And Mike, for those who don't know, got shot 27 times. Yeah. I got shot once. And I remember him sitting there Actually, in the room with me. I actually listened to his podcast recently. Yeah, he does those? I, it was with a, maybe it was with like a Jocko, maybe? I don't know. But, um, I, no, I haven't, I haven't listened to him. But he, he was sitting there and I said, Mike, you know, fuck, I got shot once, man. I'm a fucking mess. And he got shot I'm like, you got times. shot 27 times. He's like, dude, we all have our way through this stuff. There's no, nobody's got it down, you know. I was, it was pretty surprising. It made a big difference. Also, my buddies. Uh, I went from there to the psych ward, which... How long um, were you in the psych ward for? A couple weeks, three weeks. And then they were just trying to find a place to send me after that for longer-term care. And so the guys who ended up kind of saving my life the night that I got shot up, they were both involved in me going to the next... It was a civilian Can we back facility. it up? I'm sorry, I got to interrupt. Can we back it up to the story, kind of why they thought you needed to go somewhere else and you weren't fit for there because they brought you in some magazines and... Well, I, this may or may not have been the reason, but <laughs> some of the guys came to see me and I you know in the SEAL teams the only time you really wear your dress uniform is when you're going to a funeral mm-hmm. or when somebody's getting some crazy award and like some admiral's giving it to him or like mm-hmm. a congressman or something so I know I'm, I'm embarrassed I'm in these little purple pajamas and I'm in the hospital <laughs> and my buddies God bless them they're like hey we're gonna go see him and I'm like fuck I don't want those guys coming over here they right. gotta put their uniform on and it sucks you know Okay. But they kept showing up. They'd come and see me, and I'd be sitting there in my little purple pajamas, all dejected and embarrassed and shit, but they didn't care. So one day, a couple of young guys came, and they brought me some skydiving magazines, and they handed them to me, and one of the people that works there reaches over, and he's like, hey, man, I, I can't let you have those magazines. And I'm like, why? He said, well, there's staples in them, and you could hurt somebody. And I said, man, if you, if you think I need staples to kill everybody in this place, you're the one that's crazy. Don't, <laughs> staples? You, yeah, you shouldn't do that. You shouldn't threaten. He threatened the staff. I mean, I didn't really outright threaten them, but I was like... You got a shot. Because you wanted wanted to fight. Yeah. Well, I just was embarrassed and being an asshole. And so... What'd that get you? (laughs) Yeah, another. I spent another week in there because of that. And then they figured out a civilian place for me to go, which is certainly beneficial to me. In fact, I think this divide we have between military people who have gone through traumas and civilians, I think that's that's a bad... That's a bad divide. I think what I learned in that place is that I volunteered for some of the trauma that I got. There, mm-hmm. I met civilians in there who went through horrible things that they didn't volunteer for. Right. And they were still in there trying to fight. And it was really educational for me. I, again, going back to you know the personality stuff, I'm not the rah, 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 tough guy, chest out. That's just not how I look at things. And for me, being in a place where nobody really cared about the whole Navy SEAL thing. Everybody was really working on themselves and trying to figure that out. I think that was a really big blessing. And I think coming away from it, it helped me a little bit. I still didn't know what I was going to do with myself, but I had definitely knew that I was capable and that I had the tools Mm -hmm. to do it. And Mm -hmm. I just had to figure it out. Next up, we have uh, Andy Stomp. 
Andy Stomp, um, as to what Blue was saying, was a cake eater as well. Um, he had to explain to me what that meant. Uh, that he, I don't know. It's is it wedding cake or what kind of cake are we talking? No, about? No, it's just like officer cake. Officer if there's, cake. If there's an officer in the room, you better have cake for him. Oh. Didn't know that. Um, would they agree with this? If, if they're listening to this, would they agree that they're, that I they're mean, cake? Or is it like known um, yes, it's in the 100%, military? If you're an officer, like, you're a cake eater? Yeah. Interesting. Um, yeah, officers officers get treated way better than enlisted. They do? Like, we're the enlisted swine. Uh-huh. We don't, we don't, we get bottom of the barrel. Officers, you know, back in the day, they, they the were, cake. yeah, they were served like great meals and everything. And, cake, and the enlisted cake was, yeah, enlisted. Here's cleaning your, boots and here's scrubbing your, bathroom um, floors. Here's your can of beans and, um, <laughs> Yeah, go sit over there. I don't know. I don't know if I believe this. I need resources and I need to do my research. Um, So Andy Stump is, he is so amazing. Just a true inspiration. He is a former former Navy SEAL and the host of a popular podcast called Cleared Hot. Uh, There is no filter on Andy, which is why a lot of people really love what he has to say. Uh, He came on Reborn. He talked about his career, his podcast, and his new approach to fitness and um, everything that he is doing now that he is out of the military. So welcome on, Andy Stumpf. So, well, tell me, like, I want to talk a little bit about fitness, though, for you. So after you got out of the teams, did, I, tra- did, I, try to, did I try to get you to, like, run with me at one point? Or yeah, there was, I was something like, get the fuck that out of here. I'm not <laughs> running like, anywhere. I'm running, like, five miles a day, or I don't know. I don't know yeah. what it was. I was trying to remember before we got on this podcast together that I kept trying to bug you. There was an offer run. somewhere of, like, let's go run. I was like, are you out of your goddamn mind? <laughs> yeah, you're like, I don't run. <laughs> I don't yeah, run for anything. Fit- yeah. Fitness for me, you know, my old job is not easy on the body. You know, knees, shoulders, necks, backs, it's just from a lot of weight. And I can actually feel it when I stop working out. And working Mm -hmm. out for me comes in a variety of different ways. Um, But when I don't physically train, two things happen. One, my body feels like shit. It starts aching and I can really feel like, wow, I got got some some old miles on the, uh, mm. the body there. Mm. And when I work out, I just feel it, you know, from a muscular perspective, it supports my skeletal system so much better. But if I, the worst thing is though, is like my emotional state will crumble if yeah. I don't have a physical outlet. So about two years ago, I started doing jujitsu. And before that I was traditionally working out doing CrossFit methodology stuff just in my garage. Mm-hmm. And then when I found jujitsu, um, that to me is pretty much how I've been working out for the last two years because I'm Mm -hmm. trying to figure it out. You know, I'm Mm -hmm. trying to figure out the foundation and fundamentals of that. And I'll add strength training back in. I'm actually already at a point right now where I need to, because there are some asymmetries. If you do jujitsu, there's a lot of similarities, but it's a lot of pulling and less pushing and you can develop some issues in your body. Uh, And I say that because I feel it in myself and then talking to people who've been Mm -hmm. practitioners for a long time. So I'll add some weights back in because I don't, I can't think of a single negative consequence to being strong as a human being, whether you're a man or a woman. But it's so for me, it's it's twofold. I have to do it for my body to feel normal and mm-hmm. I have to do it for my brain to function. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Are you still rolling now through like COVID and stuff? Are you able to train? Yes, I have been able to train. I usually that's will good. go in somewhere between five to six days per week for about two hours a day. Dude, that's good. I've started rolling again. I was rolling all the time like two I years ago. I fuck you up. I no, no way. You. I'm like a monkey. I could totally, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm pretty confident that I could take you. 
but I haven't been. But for me, this is this is like one of the pitfalls of I, I've tried to stop traveling as much as I was traveling. But I would be training, and then I would have to leave, yep. or I would do some crazy like physical, you know, inconsistency. Thing. Yeah, that, inconsistency. and that crushes jujitsu uh, progression. Does it does, and so. Even now, like I, um, I was training really consistently, and then I ended up getting another tattoo, and so I had to stop for like a week and a half or two weeks, and then you know now the kids are back in school, and I'm homeschooling now, and so, um, yeah. but I love it. It's like the 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 mental aspect of jujitsu, because um, it's like it's this, crazy. It is crazy, and it's like this human. I like to say like a, a human game of chess, of just yeah. I agree. And it's hard to describe to people unless they experience that. It's yeah. a very difficult physical sensation to right. describe. And if people who think it's, they're like, oh, can you really get a good workout doing jujitsu? No, I you am can. wrecked at yeah. the end of it. Mentally, mentally and physically, though, because Correct. like you're just, you're having to constantly think and prepare. And um, yeah, it, it's good. And I, you know, I've been a huge advocate ever since I had like that crazy, uh, stalking experience where somebody flew here to Virginia to try to find me. I think yeah, that's for, not for, awesome. No, it's not. It's not awesome. Um, but even for females and during the time that I've been consistently training with jujitsu or I do Muay Thai as well sometimes mm-hmm. that I'm just, I feel more, um, alert, assertive. Like if, if something were to happen, I, feel like I could better defend myself or just like the movement and like the, I don't know, the, the way that your body moves in a defense for jujitsu. Like I just, I think it's so important. Like it's not, and I, yeah. and I, I can see too how, especially females can be a little bit intimidated on, you know, getting on the mats. Um, it's just so, but important. they shouldn't be. They shouldn't be. You know, no. I have a daughter who's 12, and the only thing I would ever want for her is the ability to be confident in any yeah. situation. Yep. And in speaking to the the mat culture where I train is awesome. There mm. is a total mixed bag of men and women. It's not just dudes in their 20s who are tatted out, smashing each other. There's right. people who come to class who are in their 60s. And I'll, yep. I mean, I'll roll with everybody. I can totally understand the hesitation for women to want to get into that environment. But you can you can navigate around that stuff. You can pick training partners. You can go to the right gym. Or take a, but take I, a, know, if it's a girl, take a girlfriend and have her be your training partner. But correct. I do think it's important for somebody to have some experience that you roll with as well. Yeah. Oh, I agree. But I, you know, I have conversations with women at the gym and they'll talk about things that I have never once thought about in my life. And I didn't realize how much of a blind spot that was. You know, I've never worried about walking to my car at nighttime. Mm, it's yeah. never crossed my mind. I've never been like, oh man, I hope that nobody, somebody... Actually, if I'm being totally honest, in my head, most of the time, I'm like, God, it'd be awesome if somebody attacked me. <laughs> right. But <laughs> that, I might be a little fucked up. But I didn't realize how much other additional thought process goes yeah. into place for women when it comes to uh, the area of being physically intimidated or physically assaulted. Total blind spot. And then you talk to them on the mat or in class and the difference that it's made in their life and the way that they they physically walk different because of the confidence and i actually think most you know most predators are looking for the weakest victim not 100%. the strongest yeah they're going to deselect themselves from most victim situations just because of the knowledge that they have and the way that they express it through mm-hmm. their movement mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. no i agree this was probably like a year and a half ago um it was this guy who just stalked me on social media flew into virginia beach on a one-way ticket 
with a burner phone, a pocket full of cash, and yeah, came right in here into my restaurant. He had been here like three times that day prior looking for me. And I remember even, and in, in, in at that time I was not doing any sort of self-defense. Um, I was very self-aware though. I was, yep. I was aware of my surroundings. I knew who, exactly who he was as soon as somebody told me his name. And um, I mean, after that, like, and, and you're right, but that night for he got put in jail and, um, and then he got released on a bond and, and he was still in Virginia beach and I was sleeping literally with a gun right next to me and my kids in my bed. What other option do you have? You know, right. if you don't have other tools, I mean, again, no. that's, and that's the thing. And this is important too, about jujitsu for men or for women. There are times when jujitsu is not going to be enough. I'm right. an advocate the way I describe it to people is you need to be able to manage your ranges. Yep. Um, Jiu-jitsu is great for when somebody puts their hands on you, mm-hmm. but you are already doing something that I recommend to people as well, which would be Muay Thai or striking because you don't have to let people touch you. But right. if you're only good at protecting yourself, if they can grab a hold of you, mm-hmm. well, you know, maybe they're really good at grabbing a hold of people too. So you can keep them at a short range distance. And then there are other tools mm-hmm. available that can push your safe zone or your safe distance out. Guns, that, I mean, that's where they come into the conversation for me. Of course, with that is an increased level of responsibility, training, yeah. competency, currency, all of that stuff. But if you don't have any of those other skills, what other choice did you have at your house? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a reasonable thing to do yeah. to protect yourself and the people that you love. All right. Last but not least, I have my good friend, Casey Mitchell. Um Casey. Casey. I met Casey. We did a, a Veterans Day. It was called Vets Valor probably two or three years ago where I had a handful of uh, wounded vets come out and we did a 24-hour wad. Do you remember that? Where we did oh, yeah. every hour on the hour we did we did a workout. Yeah, I, rem- Dude, okay. I remember it because Casey wouldn't do thrusters. Yeah, okay. So Casey, at that time, I think his training has kind of transitioned a little bit. But at that time, you guys have to understand, he... he uh, he holds uh like powerlifting records like he is he is so into powerlifting and um anyways so i talked him into coming out for vets valor i think he was like oh yeah sure i'll do it not really knowing what he was getting into dude he hated me he hated me for 23 hours of that 24 hour uh uh wad and uh the last one that we did we did the murph and uh, him and I just have this memory of him and I just hammering it out together. And at the very end, I mean, we were just both exhausted and um, there might have been some tears there. I can't I don't want to speak for Casey, but uh, he just said that was the hardest thing that he had ever done. And I think the most rewarding thing. And since then, yeah. you know, I think his training has kind of changed a little bit. But that, It was really difficult for him. Yeah. So um in 2010, he lost his leg in an explosion uh, while he was serving uh, in the United States over in Afghanistan. Um, so early this year, Casey came on to the Reborn podcast, um, and we talked about when he hit rock bottom. Um, and then that's whenever he decided to make a change. And his his life and his career and everything that he's doing, he has a supplement company uh, that he's running, and he's just such an inspiration. I actually saw that for Veterans Day, I think he launched a nonprofit a oh, non-pro- really? Yeah, it's a clothing line. I need to look more into it, but you guys can follow KC on social media and check out what he's doing. Just such an inspiration, such a pipe hitter, just like Nick and um, 
And so let's uh let's bring Casey on. Can you share your story with us, Casey? Yeah. So uh, so I, I basically was in the military and I did my first tour in Iraq in 0506. And then I uh, did my second tour in Afghanistan, 2009, 2010. And then I was, I was probably there about 12 months. I went on uh, my last mission and got hit by a pressure plate IED in the vehicle that I was commanding. Um, big pressure plate IED blew through the vehicle, kind of just tore me to shreds, I guess you could say. And then I spent the next uh, about three years, um, one year at Walter Reed and two years at uh, Balboa down in San Diego, basically having surgeries and rehabilitation. So technically, I just basically lived in and out of a hospital for three years um, after my, you know, uh, incident. And um, yeah, I mean, I ended up losing my left leg. My right leg is basically limb salvaged, even to this day, you know, it still causes me a lot of issues. Um, I had damage from my right forearm, uh, lower, bra- lower back fracture, um, had some TBI, you know, just a lot of little, you know, second and third degree burns, you know, just some an- annoying little things. But, uh, you know, I, I, I've been near, near like about 50 surgeries or so, you know, over those three years. Wow. And, uh, I'm, you know, I'm sure I have to have more down the road. My knees kind of give my knees finally given get kind of given out because I took a lot of damage to that right knee as well and to the right ankle. So that's kind of starting to give me a lot of problems all due to everything that I've been doing lately. But, uh, uh, so yeah, I went through that and then I, uh, you know, got uh, medically retired, which wasn't in my game plan at that time. And uh, basically got pushed out of the army. And then I moved to Bakersfield where I'm at now and didn't have anything to kind of like uh, wake up to. I didn't have a job. There was nothing for me to do. I still was trying to learn how to like walk and be mobile and um, uh, uh, just kind of accept, uh, you know, everything, you know, whether it be physical or mental. And so, I, you know, I just kept waking up every day with really like no purpose, I felt like, you know, but just to wake up. And so I, I fell deep into video games, junk food, and um, like basically the narcotics that I was prescribed for all the pain and everything like that. And just over a time without me like really realizing, I became addicted to these narcotics and I was taking them more and more. And then I was got to a point where I was just taking them to kind of just be on cloud nine and kind of like physically be here but mentally not be here and i didn't have any friends i didn't know anybody in bakersfield and i don't know the only friends i had were these fucking people on a headset where uh at that time in my life they didn't know who i was what i looked like didn't know about me you know being an amputee uh are you talking about are you talking about like playing video games what do you mean in a headset video games video games yeah so like it's just people you know and i just kind of got to be who I was before I got injured, you know, which was kind of like just a hard ass, you know, and I know it sounds weird, like on a video game, you're hardest, but yeah, I just got to be my normal self, you know, and, you know, there's just no insecurities because you can be whoever you want to be, I guess you could say on a video game. Right. And so I just, you know, fell deep into it and was just, that was the only time. And I had pills that basically I would take and, and uh, I realized that they could keep me up for very long periods of time. So I would take them and stay, you know, I would just, just literally sit down on a couch. Uh, you know, I, I still have it to this. I still have this couch. It was this dark brown uh, couch that my ex-wife had bought from Ikea. And I remember I had sat in this one spot for so long, just over a period of time, that I actually, like, indented that spot of just sitting there 
gaming so much. And I like that chair because it's a good reminder of like, kind of like where I wasted my life, I guess you could say, you yeah. know? And so I, uh, you know, ended up going to Disneyland with my daughter and my ex-wife at the, you know, my wife at the time. And, um, I was really excited to go and, and I very quickly realized that I'm in no physical shape to even be walking like a block, you know? And, and I was in pain and I was just, and I was irritable and agitated. I was popping pills to like help the pain. But, you know, I started and they're sweating and it's just, it's miserable. And I basically like long story short over a three day period of time, we only lasted about a day and a half of a three day trip planned. And then you kind of sit there and realize like you, you're this, you know, that's my daughter. I'm her dad. And I ruined her birthday, you know, at Disneyland mm. all because I've been kind of sitting on my ass and not doing anything. And, you know, being addicted to these, like these pills and this life that is like a fake life. And my real life is right here in front of me and I'm not even, you know, paying attention or getting myself better for this, you know? And so, um, you know, the, the drive home was very emotional for me. I was really upset and mad at myself. And then as soon as I got into the house, you know, I tell people, I felt like the car wasn't even stopped, you know, before I was already out of that door in my house and getting rid of every narcotic that I, I had, every narcotic, all the junk food, sodas, anything, beer, everything, got rid of all of it, started dumping it all. And uh, I went through uh, three days of like severe withdrawals. You know, I locked my, had, had my uh, wife at the time put me in my daughter's room and kind of just like told everybody, leave me alone and let me go through it. Cause I knew what was going to, like, I already knew what was going to happen. Wow. And I went through three days of withdrawals and it was miserable and it was uh, very, very tough. Uh, it's not that I was, um, craving to have pills. It's just that I was sick. You know, my body was just so used to having them. And the mm. thing was, is like, huh, I wasn't even in, I wasn't even in pain, you know, don't, like sitting there, you know, I'm not in pain sitting there. I get into pain when I'm walking or running or doing anything like, you know, uh, strenuous, but uh, sitting in your house, you're not in pain. And if you are in pain, it's, it's tolerable, you know? And, mm. and, and so, you know, I, I wasn't in, um, it wasn't, I was sitting there like fiending for these pills. It's just that I was sick because I was basically detoxing on my own. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so I basically went through it and I got through it. And uh, a few days later, um, you know, I started, uh, watching YouTube videos of people, uh, in the fitness industry. It's funny because people then I used to watch them and I'm friends with them now, which is so crazy. You know, like, Dana Bailey and all them. I remember them back in the day, you know, CT Fletcher back in the day. And I just, I would watch them to get motivated and kind of like learn about lifting and just the lifestyle and stuff. And, uh, Rich Piana, just guys like that, you know? And so I just started going to the gym and I remember like I would lay there or sit there before I go to the gym and just turn on some YouTube and watch these guys get pumped up and go to the gym. And it took me a long time at the gym to kind of, uh, you know, be secure with myself. You know, I wore sweatpants for probably up near a year in the gym, it would be 110 outside. I'd still wear sweatpants. Um, you know, I didn't walk real well. Like now if I wear pants and I walk, people can't even tell, you know, but you know, and then I just kept going, you know, I, I met a couple buddies and I just told them like, just make sure I'm coming, you know, I want to be here, but you know, push me to be here, you know? And so I went and then I fell in love with it. Um, I started to get stronger. I started to look like my old self. And then, um, as people started kind of noticing that I was an amputee or kind of started figuring me out in a way, I um, uh, was like, man, I just want to see how far I can push this. And it's kind of cool when I go in there and I'm lifting more than guys that are like able-bodied guys, you know, and 
And so I just kept doing it and fell in love with it. And, you know, powerlifting, like what I do now, it, was, it wasn't even my realm. I wasn't even, I was just lifting the lift. And then one day um, we had this event here in Bakersfield, and it was one of the guys that I watched on YouTube all the time, Rich Piana came to Bakersfield for like a meet and greet at a, at a nutrition store. And I went and uh, I went and I met, you're there. I went and I met him and, um, and he, he was just cool, you know, and he, we started talking. I told him a little bit about what happened to my leg. And then next thing you know, he's like, Hey, do you want to like lift one day, shoot a, shoot a YouTube video? And I was blown away. I was like, yeah, man, I'll come out there. Yeah. You know, I was like, anytime you just let me know, I'll, I'll come out there. And he's like, no, today. He's like, let's just, let's just drive to your gym right now and let's film some stuff. And That's I was cool. like, floored. I was floored. And, uh, so I'm like getting in my truck. Here's Rich in the car behind me. I'm driving. I'm calling every single one of my friends. Get your asses <laughs> to the gym. Man. Rich Piana's coming down here, you know, and, and actually, you know, we have like a hundred fucking people in the gym with us, you know, and shooting, I'm just I'm, he wanted me to uh, bench, squat, and deadlift, which I didn't really do a lot of. Uh, and he didn't care what it looked like. He didn't care what the form looked like. He just wanted to show people, like, no excuses. Get out there. Do your shit, you know. And we shot this YouTube video. We went down afterwards and had a pancake eat off. And and that was the end of it. <laughs> and, 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 and that was the end of it. It was the greatest thing ever. And he never mentioned to me about anything. And then one morning, I was uh, it was like two days later, I'm sitting in bed. And I had, you know, my Instagram is very small, like a couple hundred people followed it. And I had all my notifications on because I wasn't really cool. So my notifications really never, never went off, you know. And then all of a sudden my phone is just, it's just you like crazy going off. And I'm like, what the hell is going on? You know, and I was like, it can't be the picture of Rich that I posted. That doesn't make sense. And then that's where it all started. Rich put a video together, put it on his Instagram, put it on his YouTube and that's when it all started for me. You Would know? you say and, that's, uh, the, yeah, that's the beginning of your career? That was the beginning was of that it. Moment? You know, it was just, well, just seeing people like being inspired by what it is that I was doing and motivated by what I was doing. I was like, oh shit, like, man, I, I like this. Like if people are motivated by me, this is what I'm going to do. So I just started lifting, you know, and then um, uh, I would say a couple years later, I went to a powerlifting meet and watched one with some friends and uh, you know, when I was in the fitness, I didn't really have a calling. I didn't really have a niche. I didn't know like what it was that I was going to do. I know like, you know, I thought I'll oh, compete physique, bodybuilding, whatever, you know, I, I, I didn't know what I was going to do. And then I went to a powerlifting meet and just the amount of energy and just the intensity and the anger. I was like, this is everything like me. This is me. And I was just obsessed. And then I started getting on the website, on the internet, and started looking for amputee powerlifters. And there really wasn't any. Like, there's some, but they weren't doing, like, full power, like, squat, bench press, deadlift. And I was like, why? You know, like, why? And, well, I started training, and I figured out why, because it's fucking hard, you know what I mean? It's really <laughs> hard as an amputee, let alone with all the injuries that I have, to do that type of training, to get it to a level to where you can compete against able-bodied athletes and 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 in regulation, you know, squat to death, bench right, deadlift and lock it out, and things like that. And uh, squatting was the hardest thing for me. And uh, I trained for one year uh, straight uh, before I was able to finally learn how to free squat. Finally, free squatted, um, you know, to depth, perfect. Like I could go into competition and squat. It took me a whole year. And then I did my first powerlifting comp uh, right there at the LA Fit Expo, and it was the 
craziest experience of my life. Like just, it's like the whole expo shut down to watch me. The videos mm-hmm. of like on YouTube. It, I remember the guy that here. The funny story was the guy that I saw in Vegas the first time I ever watched to me. His name's Brandon Allen. He was competing with me at that same event that I was competing at my very first powerlifting event. And I remember I was getting in the back, getting ready to pull my last deadlift. It was a 600 pound deadlift that I had failed seven times prior to my comp. I've never pulled it. And I can hear the, uh, the, the guy getting everybody hyped up. And uh, I remember Brandon coming up to me and grabbing me by the face and just being like, dude, you don't know what you're doing right now. You should see what's going on out there. And he uh, told me, he's like, you're going to go out there and you're going to pull this and you're going to change the game and powerlifting and like, you know, what it is about you today. And I didn't know what the hell he was talking about. I was the same people out there. So I went out there and just, like I said, LA Expo's huge. It was just incredible. 400, 500, 600 people just surrounding the stadium to watch me pull this one deadlift. And mm. and I pulled it, you know, for the first time ever. And that's when I was like, this is it for me. This is what I want to do. And so I've been doing it ever since. Thank you guys so much for joining me on today's Reborn podcast. What an honor and a privilege it has been to know so many amazing veterans who are doing some amazing things and that are inspiring people around the world. If you are listening to this episode and you are a veteran and you need help, do not be afraid to reach out to veteran organizations and and or a close friend or somebody in your family and just say, hey, Like, I need help. I know with the pullout from Afghanistan has been incredibly hard for veterans who served over there and their time over there. Um, I know that going through the holidays and and coming out of just like the lockdowns and maybe you've lost direction. um, Please, please, please reach out to somebody and say, hey, I just need to talk or, hey, I'm having these, you know, dark thoughts and I just I need help. Happy Veterans Day out there to all of the veterans. uh, And if you are still serving, thank you so much for your service. Please uh, leave me a review. If you like this, guys, just share the podcast. I would like nothing more than for you to just share the podcast on your social media platforms. You can tag Reborn Pod. You can tag me, Ashley.Horner on Instagram. And I will catch you guys next time. Peace. (laughs) 